of whom uh, ends up feeling like her ability to mother has been insulted, and the other is just deeply concerned about preserving the integrity of her family's trip to the beach. Now, each of these mothers had a relatively young son at this time, and their sons happened to be good friends. And being the good friends that they were, when the one family was planning their vacation, the, the son saw fit to invite the other son to come with them. Now, both families thought this would be just fine, and the boys were all excited, and everything was as it should have been. However, as the trip drew nearer, the boy who was going to be the guest on this trip, he shows up at home and presents his mother with an envelope. And upon opening the envelope, the mother discovers a checklist. A checklist which has been crafted by the host mother regarding what the guest mother is allowed to pack for her son. Not, not suggestions, not guidelines, not a general synopsis of where they'll be going and what they'll be doing so she can pack accordingly, but a checklist, a list of what the boy is allowed to bring. He can bring this. And I kid you not, according to my sources, it was supposedly detailed down to the number of underwear that the boy could bring. Now, now the response that I hope you're at least having internally to this scenario is because you perceive the sheer ridiculousness of presuming that a woman from South Carolina, I mean, this might be a little different if we were in South Dakota or something, but an adult from South Carolina would need a checklist in order to appropriately pack her son's bag for the beach. It's pretty absurd. She did not need a checklist. She did not benefit from the checklist. You can't actually distill a beach trip into a checklist. But I'd like to submit to you this evening... It's just as nonsensical for us to imagine that the Christian life can be distilled into a checklist, a list of cans and cannots. So let's take up our passage and see why. We'll be in the first 12 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my worksmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? There's only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does not he certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you now for this opportunity to, to take a break from our week and to come and sit in front of your word. Lord, open our ears. Open our eyes, cause us to see what's here, 
and only what's here. Lord, may the value of your gospel be magnified in these moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so immediately prior to the text of our passage tonight in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul has dealt with the subject of how these first century Christians are to relate to food offered to idols. And and the chief solution is that they are to think of others as greater than themselves. Brotherly love is the answer. Concern for the hearts of fellow Christians is the answer. So what does that mean that they ought to do? Well, it depends. If understood or right by all parties involved, that's one thing. But if an action causes a brother or sister to stumble, that action is sin against Christ. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And then the conclusion of the matter in chapter 8 is that that reality had better influence what we do. So verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So no matter how strongly you feel that you're entitled to eat steak, you better be ready to drop that right if it will help you love others in your context well. Now, now Paul doesn't just float that out there and and keep on moving like we should be quick to surrender our rights and just move on. No, he he spends all of chapter 9 showing how he practices what he preaches. Paul practices what he preaches by laying down his right to be compensated for his work among the Corinthians. In order to demonstrate that, he first has to prove that he legitimately has the right to earn a living through this work, and he sets out to do that in three ways. The first way he invites the Corinthians, and by extension he invites us to consider his right to compensation, is in the consideration of who he is. So look at his life. Verses 1 and 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my worksmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Look at his life. Paul's apostleship, and particularly Paul's apostleship among the Corinthian believers, gives him the right to be financially compensated for his work. Now, it's not difficult to see that the Corinthians must have made much of their liberty in Christ. It's not difficult to see that this emphasis on the liberty in Christ had a tendency to get distorted. At times, it caused them to take sin lightly. At times, it caused them to live blatantly immoral lives. So so it's no secret that the idea of freedom meant much to them. And Paul in his defense, begins to assert his right to compensation by asking, am I not free? You you think you're free? I'm as free as you are. You think liberty in Christ means something to you? I'm the one who taught you of your liberty in Christ. As Paul commands the Corinthians to be ready and willing to lay down their freedoms, as he commands us to be ready and willing to lay down our freedoms, he's doing so as a man who has the very same freedoms. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? How would Paul go about establishing that? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? I'd say that's a pretty good start. And I'll witness of Christ, a witness to the reality of the resurrection, called and commissioned to be an apostle by the manifest, bodily resurrected Lord Jesus. Am I not an apostle? Are you not my worksmanship in the Lord? 
Newsflash, Paul planted the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, Paul comes into Corinth. Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. He tries ministering in the synagogue. He gets thrown out. He sets up shop in the house next door. He ends up leading the ruler of the synagogue to the Lord, and many others repent and trust Christ. And Paul and company stay in Corinth for 18 months. Has he not had a fruitful ministry among the Corinthians? Are not the marks of his apostleship evident among them? Are you not my worksmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You know, if if anyone knows Paul, it's the Corinthians. The, The seal, the genuine nature, the authenticity of Paul's apostleship, it's written on their hearts. It's manifested in their faith in the Lord Jesus. It's tangible in their changed lives. So, does Paul have the right to be compensated for his work among the Corinthians? Evidence number one, consider who he is. Consider the fruit of what he's done. Look at his life. Then look at the logic. Look at the logic in beginning of verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Paul Paul simply states that he has the right to be sustained by the ones he works among. Now, now he's not concerned right here about the breadth of what Christian liberty gives him the freedom to eat or drink. He does that other places. But here he's merely making the argument that in light of the life that he's been commissioned to lead and the work that he's done in Corinth, the Corinthians ought to be eager to meet his physical needs. You know, the secular world understands this concept. Uh, I'm coaching football at York High School this season. uh, I see you, Jay. Uh, The pay is pretty terrible. Food's pretty good, though. The food's not bad. But, you know, if teaching teenagers how to block gets me around 10,000 calories a week or so from a secular institution, as well as an unlimited supply of bottled water, isn't the church obligated to supply nourishment for the man that the Lord has sent to them to preach and defend the gospel? Yeah. Paul has that right. Look at verses 5 and 6. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? There's only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. So Paul asserts that he has the right to marry a Christian woman, And if he were married to a Christian woman, she would have the right to minister along with him wherever he goes. And his argument for this is that the church clearly feels that way about others in his position. The brothers of the Lord. One of them, notably prominent in the church in Jerusalem, human author of the book of James. One of them, human author of the book of Jude. Then you've got Cephas, Peter. And we know that the Corinthians had experience with Peter because they've subdivided themselves over who their favorite preacher is in chapter 1, and we see that Peter is one of the candidates. So Paul holds up well-known, prominent leaders in the early church, and he essentially says, look, we all know that you're fine with supporting them and their wives while they're engaged in ministry. So, So is there something different about Barnabas and I that makes us special? I mean, we don't, we don't even have, they don't even have wives with them. Are Paul and Barnabas somehow excluded from being supported? No. 
Paul has that right. Verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Th- this argument has now moved to the logic of common sense. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. If I'm not mistaken, military enrollment is down at the moment as is. Can you imagine what would happen if we made military service strictly voluntary? I I know a brother who's in high school at the moment. He's got a desire to pursue a career in the military. He's a bright kid. He's a talented kid. He has a really high ASVAB score. Now, just imagine him walking into the recruiting office down at the Galleria and them saying, hey, here's the package we can put together for you, Evan. If you will pay for your own rifle and your own sidearms and your own uniforms and any other gadgets we decide you might need, we'll be happy to get you on the battlefield where you can give yourself over to fighting the enemy full time. And then you can take whatever time you have left over and you use that time to to find another job so you can pay your bills and take care of your family. Who would do that? No one would do that. So Paul has the right. Who plants a vineyard? without eating any of its fruit. Agriculture is tough work. Between figuring out what you need to know about your soil and then the crops you're trying to, go, to grow, and then you've got to manage the variables of, of animals and of insects and of unexpected weather, and, and not to mention just the simple reality of, of really long days and really hard labor and really high stress. It's the kind of work that you wouldn't expect someone to do without compensation. No one would sow seed without planning to eat some of the fruit. So Paul has the right. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? That's, that's the same exact argument. Shepherding is tough work. Animals have a mind of their own. They want to go where they want to go. They want to do what they want to do. You have to feed them, and you have to heal them, and you have to guard them, and you have to guide them. They need constant attention. It's the kind of work that you wouldn't expect someone to do without compensation. No one would tend to flock without planning to drink some of the milk. Thus, Paul has the right. Just look at the logic. Now look at the law. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It's written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So so not only is is compensation Paul's right in in light of his life, not only is compensation Paul's right in, in light of the logic, but compensation is Paul's right in light of the law. The principle that we see here in the law, particularly Deuteronomy 25, it's not new to Paul's argument. It's the same argument he's just made. If you're going to make an ox work, you ought to let the ox eat. The plowman ought to plow in hope. Let the thresher thresh in hope. A worker deserves his wages. So so give a soldier a paycheck. Give the vengeance some fruit. Give the shepherd some milk. But here we see this principle in the law. The law which at its core is a revelation of who God is and what God values. 
And what the Lord values is the worker is to be compensated for the work he's done. Whether he's a soldier, or whether he's a farmer, or whether he's a shepherd, or whether it's an ox. And with that, we come to the capstone, the crux of Paul's argument. Verse 11. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? No. No, it's certainly not too much. The answer is obviously no. If York High School will feed me when I do secular work, the church ought to feed Paul when he works on behalf of their souls. If a soldier is compensated for his willingness to go to battle against the forces of man, then Paul ought to be compensated for his willingness to battle against the forces of darkness on behalf of the Corinthians. If the one who labors in the vineyard can expect to eat some of the fruit, then Paul ought to be rewarded in some fashion when he sows the seed of the gospel. If the shepherd can expect a glass of milk while he tends his flock, then the people to whom Paul is a spiritual shepherd ought to be quick to share their resources to meet his physical needs. If the law guarantees an ox the right to sustain itself from the field where it labors, then the law also guarantees Paul the right to sustain himself from the field where he labors. The beginning of verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. If the church will supply for the physical needs of the rest of the apostles and for the brothers of the Lord and for Peter and for their wives, then they certainly ought to supply the needs of the man who brought them the gospel. For the man who can legitimately look at them and say, you are the seal, the guarantee, the mark of of authenticity of my apostleship. Paul has that right. Paul does not use that right. He does not use this right. Paul is the soldier who pays his own way to the battlefield. He's the farmer who labors without eating his crops. He's the shepherd who tends the sheep without drinking their milk. He's the ox who treads out the grain while wearing the muzzle. Why? Why doesn't Paul make use of his right? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul doesn't make use of his legitimate right Because if making use of his legitimate right would put an obstacle in the way of the gospel, then making use of his legitimate right would be sin. Specifically, it would be idolatry. If Paul leverages his right to be compensated, knowing that it will create an obstacle for the gospel, then he would betray that he values being compensated more than he values the gospel of Christ. What many people seem to think is fuzzy in chapter 8, all of a sudden becomes really clear in light of chapter 9, verse 12. Because if you consider the wonder of the fact that a holy and just and righteous God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all things in them, and by that very act of his creation, he has inherent authority over us as his rightful subjects. Yet we, as his subjects, rebelled against him. 
We come out of the womb with a disposition to rebel against him. With a heart that values any number of things is more valuable than him. A spirit is eager to heap praise upon any number of things or people other than him. And as soon as our will is able to act upon that disposition, we do. Every one of us, every one of us has earned eternal punishment for our sins against the eternal God. Every one of us deserves the utmost punishment because we have committed treason against the being with the utmost value in all the cosmos. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he sent his son to live a righteous life on our behalf. He, he sent his son to take the punishment for our sin in our place. He sent his son to conquer the grave to give us hope for new life in him. And now he commands all people everywhere to turn from their sin and put their trust in him. And to whosoever will, he promises true life now and life eternal in the world that is to come. If Paul would have been willing to let his desire to exercise any of his legitimate rights create an obstacle for that gospel then brothers and sisters, Paul would have been an idolater. Where do you, brothers and sisters, need to repent for your idolatry? Life in the kingdom is not to be lived by a checklist. Just because you think you have the right does not necessarily mean you should leverage that right. You have the right to mine the scriptures and to develop the sharpest biblical theology on the topic of mask wearing that the world has ever seen. And you've got the right to feel a certain level of passion for your position, but if your passion for your position on mask wearing manages to offend your unbelieving neighbor, damaging your platform to speak the gospel into his life, then you've sinned. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You have the right to an opinion on the vaccine, on the booster shot, on social distancing, on contact tracing, on the operation of school systems. But the voicing of your opinions mitigates your effectiveness as a witness for Christ. You've sinned. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You have the right to think deeply about the most recent current events. You have the right to consider the latest podcast. You have the right to evaluate the hottest Christian song. But before you take to the streets or to the coffee shops or to social media so that the world can consider your two cents, the question I ask is, should I? Not, can I? When you're at your favorite Mexican place and you find yourself across the table from a nominal Christian that you've been witnessing to, who just so happens to think that the proper Christian perspective on alcohol is total abstinence, to ask yourself the question, can I, is to commit idolatry. To ask yourself, do I have the right, is sin. Friends, the gospel is offensive enough as is. Trusting Christ means that we admit that we are not sovereign. Trusting Christ means that we admit that our condition is far worse than we ever could have imagined it to be. Trusting Christ means that we re relinquish any pursuits to a 
establish our righteousness by our own works. Trusting Christ means that we call our sin, sin, and we spend every day of our lives turning further away from it. In a word, the gospel demands humility. Something that's altogether not natural to the human heart. And to those who are lost, the whole of it is the epitome of folly. The message of the gospel doesn't need your help in offending anyone. Any help you offer is sin. So may we never be guilty of trying to live kingdom life by an imaginary checklist. May we grow cold of asking whether we can. May we grow fond of asking whether we should. Let's pray. Oh Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would break us from our sinfulness. I pray that you would rebuke us, even as you've already rebuked me. Lord, may our delight in the gospel create a delight in us to forego any rights that might cause others to stumble over your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name and for the fame of that name. Amen.